You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. Today, we are fortunate to have Dr. Sophia Aliaga, Assistant Professor from the Department of Pediatrics at the University of North Carolina, on behalf of her co-authors to discuss their study, The Influence of Neonatal Practice Variation, on outcomes of late preterm birth. Late preterm birth, defined as delivery between 34 weeks, zero days, and 36 weeks, six days gestational age, has recently gained attention due to its association with greater neonatal morbidity and increased healthcare utilization compared to term deliveries. These morbidities include more admissions to the neonatal intensive care unit, longer birth length of hospitalizations, and increased readmissions in the newborn period. In this study, Dr. Aliaga and her co-authors examined the variation in practice in the approach to the late preterm neonate across three different hospitals in run one region. Welcome, Dr. Aliaga. Hi, thank you. Can you describe your primary motivations behind this study? The primary motivation behind the paper was in studying late preterm birth morbidities in clinical care and in my own clinical practice, observing differences in approach to the neonatal care of these infants in whether it be the newborn nursery or the neonatal intensive care unit, I asked myself what aspects or what components of our care in the hospital during the birth hospitalization influences their risk of readmission. We know that they're at higher risk for readmission after they go home, but my question was, are there specific characteristics of our care that are more likely to influence that readmission risk? In other words, are there aspects of our care that we can improve quality and optimize their care? I think a lot of times we including myself, would think about length of stay and readmission risk and thinking we need to decrease readmission risk, but at the same time, you don't want to keep a baby in the hospital after birth longer than they need to. But I came to think to myself, well, it's a trade-off. You may end up staying a little bit longer during your birth hospitalization and have less risk of readmission, but it's a balance because then some babies may end up staying longer than they need to at birth. So in the day of lots of protocols and guidelines, Are there published guidelines already on how to care for the 34 to 37-week neonates? Right now, the most standard guideline comes from the American Academy of Pediatrics for the late preterm newborn defined as born between 34 and 36 completed weeks gestation. It mostly describes a minimum length of stay of about 48 hours and screening steps such as make sure their temperature is stable, that they're feeding well, that they haven't lost more than X amount of weight, that they have a bilirubin check, they have follow-up, and those types of things. But it's very much applied broadly to the whole category, 34 to 36 weeks. And as I think everybody in both of our fields will know, one 34-weeker is not another 34-weeker. And their clinical presentation is very variable, even taking into account their gestational age. So really the guidelines are somewhat broad to the whole gestational age category. How did you select your subjects for this study? One of the big design issues that comes up in a study of late preterm infants, especially multi-center where you have one center which is more of a referral type, such as the university hospital in this study, is the um, confounding that you introduce by having different risks in each population, meaning a community hospital um, 
the uh, population that delivers there may be of lower risk than a tertiary or quaternary center. So I decided to, number one, uh, obviously exclude you know, infants with major malformations, multiple gestations based on not wanting to introduce that bias. And I decided to use only inborns at each center to take out any bias potentially introduced by a transfer of a more ill child into a tertiary care center, for example. So that was probably the main characteristics about how I approached the selection. And so your goal was just those neonates who have the primary factor that influences their stay being their gestational age in that 34 to 37 week mark and yes, removing yes. other confounders like malformations or that kind of issue. Correct. What do you think the most important outcome measures were that you included in your study? The way I approached the outcomes is I chose outcomes that I in part knew would reflect an approach to practice, or, or, or in other words, practice variations such as antibiotic use. That's very much a provider-driven decision. I mean, there's obviously clinical factors about the patient that lead a neonatologist to start antibiotics, but it's very much a, a decision that the threshold varies across neonatologists. So antibiotic use, to me, represented that. Phototherapy is um, jaundice, it seems to me, is a you know, very, very common morbidity. And so I included that in there as well. And then length of stay is extremely important, especially when you're talking about wanting to then in the future look at readmission risk, number one. Number two, in the recent, in our current healthcare system, just looking at length of stay and healthcare utilization and cost. Those were really the ones that I focused on that could reflect practice variation. Oh, and I'm sorry, also, obviously, um, NICU admission, knowing that thresholds for NICU admission vary across institutions. Some were regulated, such as one of the hospitals in the paper, and some were very much left up to the provider. So obviously that is very much, um, would very much reflect practice variation. And then the outcomes of respiratory distress and hypoglycemia that I included, I used those, I kind of almost thought of them as quote-unquote control outcomes in a way because it, those are clinical physiologic manifestations of, of prematurity. I don't necessarily, as a clinician, I'm not going to make a baby hypoglycemic or I'm not going to make a baby have respiratory distress, that they're going to have that. Um, and it was interesting to see in the paper that that, really did not, those outcomes didn't vary across centers, yet the ones that I chose to represent potentially practice variation did. I think one interesting part of the study design is that you looked at these outcomes across three different types of hospitals that provide obstetric care, and, and they have three different setups or facilities for newborn care. Can you comment or describe the three institutions that you included in the study? So one is a university teaching hospital or tertiary referral center that has level four NICU and a newborn nursery all within housed within the same building and has a routine obstetric service in addition to a high-risk obstetric service. So very much you, you might expect there to be a higher-risk um, population delivering at that hospital. The teaching community hospital is almost is really kind of a hybrid between the first and the third center. So the teaching community hospital has a level three NICU and a newborn nursery and, and a routine obstetric delivery center and some high-risk obstetrics as well. And then the non-teaching community hospital has a level two neonatal intensive care unit and a newborn nursery 
and primarily a routine obstetric delivery, and I believe some higher risk obstetric in an, you know, an emergency situation, obviously. And then one key difference um, I mentioned briefly before was at the university teaching hospital, that institutional policy is that babies that are less than 35 weeks, so 34 weeks and below, automatically go to the intensive care unit, or less than two kilos of birth weight. Whereas at the other two centers, it was very much left up to the provider, to the physician, either the neonatologist or the newborn nursery clinician to make that decision. And it wasn't uncommon for there to be consults to the NICU while the baby was in the newborn nursery. So there was a little more of a kind of flow between the two nurseries without the baby actually moving, more of a communication and support, whereas in the university teaching hospital, they were either in the newborn nursery or in the NICU without much of a back-and-forth consult type thing. In your study design on this, was did you have a way that you attempted to evaluate the outcomes based on whether these protocols were present, or did that remain part of the observational evaluation of the outcomes? Yeah, that, it really remained more of an observational part of it. I did not include it as, you know, in the actual statistical analysis, more in the interpretation of it um, being only three centers. But you clearly could see it in the results when you looked at admission to the neonatal intensive care unit. You know, it, the fact that those protocols exist or don't exist were reflected in the data where we saw that 100% of babies at 34 weeks were admitted to the neonatal intensive care unit at the university teaching hospital. So therefore, in that hospital, that protocol is followed um, where all those babies are admitted. And then as the kind of level of care decreased, the admission of 34-weekers did as well. So that was interesting. When you started looking at the outcomes of the studies and you compared the populations at each of these centers, did you notice any differences? We already addressed how many automatically go to the to newborn nursery, but looking at population that delivered at each one of those centers, did you notice differences across the centers? We did notice a few interesting and, and obviously expected in some cases. For example, the insurance uh, type, so the population at a non-teaching community hospital that we saw in, in this study goes along with what other studies have shown, a more of a private insurance insured population, less racially diverse, um, although not too much, but definitely we saw, at least from the insurance perspective, that. And then the maternal kind of medical history, again, we also saw that infants at the university teaching hospital were born. Mothers had more medical problems, such as chronic hypertension in their history. So I think those are, are a lot of the interesting demographics that we found, including also um, antenatal corticosteroid use was um, higher in the university teaching hospital, and that most likely, I think, reflects one, one of two things or a combination. One is that you have a higher risk population, more likely to have received steroids because maybe that mother was transferred for a particular reason, knowing that preterm birth might happen, or is it more of a quote-unquote culture setting where we're more used to that approach. I don't know if, if you might have other comments about that, but the, at least those are the two possibilities that I interpreted. I found that in the study, too. I think it makes intuitive sense from what you're describing as you look across those levels of care of those institutions that what we expected, a clustering of people that probably are more complicated or more high risk or may have had other complications that led up to that 
preterm birth at 34, 35 weeks tend to cluster in the in the sort of university referral hospital and steps down as you get to a more community hospital. Yeah, including also the finding that more of these births occurred after labor induction or cesarean without labor. So there were more kind of intended deliveries for most likely a medical indication compared to the other two centers, the teaching community and non-teaching community hospital, where you had a higher percent of spontaneous late preterm birth. So can you describe your most significant findings when you analyzed the data? I think the two that struck me the most, um, number one, is the variability of admission to the neonatal intensive care unit. And to me, it further kind of supported my developing hypothesis that these institutional policies you know, affect the rate of NICU admission. But do we really know, and I don't think we know yet, what longer-term implications does that have, meaning how does it modify their readmission risk? How does it modify preterm healthcare utilization in the first month or so of life, depending on what hospital you're born in or what type of hospital you're born in, whether they do or don't have those types of policies, number one. Additionally, it was the fact that we saw this difference in antibiotic use, I think, was interesting and wasn't shocked to see it, but I was kind of interested in the numbers and how different the exposure to antibiotics was by, by hospital type. Most likely, in my mind, that represents the culture environment that one is used to working in in a tertiary center versus a um, more community type environment. Is that antibiotic exposure warranted? not warranted or some of it warranted, some of it not unwarranted. That's, again, another interesting question that I think really supports an ongoing effort to work on antibiotic stewardship, knowing that antibiotic exposure may not be beneficial in, in all circumstances. And then, obviously, the length of stay outcome, where we can see that certain factors, both clinical, such as gestational age, for example, and the others do influence the length of stay when you compare all of those centers. Um, and it was interesting when I recently came across a paper that was just recently accepted in another journal that talked a similar approach and also found that, for example, birth region in this paper, in addition to things such as gestational age and birth weight, affected the length of stay. And I think also primary insurance payer also affected length of stay in late preterm newborns. So starting to see that there's the, there are confirming that these other non-clinical factors have a role in determining healthcare utilization and are potentially sources that we can use to improve care and improve outcomes. To me, what was most interesting. I was struck by some of those outcomes as well. In terms of antibiotic usage, was there a, an outcome measure for positive blood cultures or confirmed sepsis across institutions, or was it just antibiotic exposure? Um, in the entire cohort of the study, in the 331 babies, there was only one positive blood culture um, in the entire group. So the majority of the antibiotic use is what we call kind of a sepsis evaluation or rule-out sepsis, where babies get a blood culture, get antibiotics, and if the blood culture is negative after 48 hours, then we stop the antibiotics. And that was the vast majority of antibiotic use, was less than three days, about 82%. And then about 18% receives the treatment for presumed, meaning baby looks sick enough that I'm worried that there's an infection even though my blood culture is negative, or actual proven sepsis. Again, that was only one newborn. So the vast majority of this antibiotic use is empirical and short-term, just less than three days. How does that affect length of stay? 
in and of itself is, is another interesting question. I think in just in summary, your table five is the main outcomes by hospital, which I think is where we've been talking about the most. And compared to the university hospital, both teaching community hospitals and non-teaching community hospitals had lower chances of NICU admission, antibiotics, and phototherapy. Interestingly, and you might be able to expound on this, the university teaching hospital had the lowest length of stay despite admissions to the nursery and did have a little bit of a higher rate of lower gestational age babies in the adjusted length of stay. Yeah, this part of the analysis was most probably the most challenging to think about and, and interpret. You know, what, is, what does adjusted length of stay really mean? And I agree, it was an interesting finding. And kind of to summarize, the, one of the key things when you look at the adjusted length of stay, granted statistical significance is not present for all of the comparisons most likely related to our sample size, but I agree, despite receiving all of those more likely to receive certain interventions, such as NICU admission, antibiotics, phototherapy, the length of stay at the university teaching was about a day shorter than the teaching community hospital. So that raises the question, you know, are there obviously limitations or confounders that we're not adjusting for? Or is that a true practice variation in how the university teaching hospital maybe keeps certain babies less time than the teaching community hospital? And I found that also interesting when you think that you go into this with the hypothesis that the university teaching hospital maybe has a higher risk population, more trainees present, things that maybe one would think would prolong the length of stay. So I agree, that's very interesting. And the next step for me in this question and other research I'm working on is, how does this translate into healthcare utilization afterwards? In other words, do these infants discharged from the teaching community hospital have more or less healthcare utilization after they are discharged? Maybe they have less because they stay longer. You know, that's one potential hypothesis. I think that leads into some of my next questions or discussions on how do you recommend that we take the findings from this study and use those in care of the late preterm neonate? Do we have enough information from this study to influence our care, or how are you using this now in your approach to these babies? I kind of look at this broadly as healthcare system quality, and some variation in practice is always going to be present. Some of it is probably, I don't know if good is the right word, but somewhat beneficial or at least not harmful. And the question is what component of this variation is potentially either harmful or decreases quality. For example, think about phototherapy. Does the university teaching hospital use more phototherapy? And is that just because of the type of providers that are there? Is it because we follow the guidelines better maybe from compared to the AAP says? I'm not saying that necessarily, but or which type of practice is leading to better outcomes. And so when I view this as a hypothesis generating paper, I want to take those questions a bit further. I think the antibiotic outcome is something that has had a lot more push lately in neonatologists acknowledging that we probably overuse antibiotics and we overuse them including this in this population. And it very much appears to be driven by where you receive your newborn care. We didn't talk about this before, but antibiotic use exclusively happened in intensive care units, meaning if that late preterm newborn went to the newborn nursery, they, in this case at least in this cohort, none of those babies received antibiotics, only the ones that went to the newborn, to the NICU. So clearly there's going to be a component of clinical presentation that prompts antibiotic use. Maybe the baby had respiratory distress, had hypoglycemia, had other clinical factors that are concerning for sepsis. 
but also there's it's likely the component of that was just due to being admitted to the NICU. And I think taking this piece of information and looking at your antibiotic use in your NICU, for example, in the late preterm population, how and why are we making those decisions in order to optimize antibiotic use? So I think the same kind of rationale applies to all of those other outcomes. I think one area is, is it the protocol that's driving the um, resource utilization or has the need for resource utilization created these protocols that are ultimately improving the long-term care? And, and the question is, one of the areas that we weren't able to address in here is what happens after they go home from the hospital. Correct, yes. And that's definitely a next step that I'm working on to try and tie those two pieces together. And how do these different aspects of birth hospitalization care affect the more, kind of more longer term in that first month or so after discharge? Do you have a planned or ongoing investigations mm -hmm. to follow up and expand on the data from this study? Data for this question is hard to come across in, in neonatology, uh, particularly because the hospital you're born at is not necessarily where you're going to get your follow-up care, obviously. And so a lot of that follow-up information you may lose if you're not followed up at that center. And the study wasn't designed to incorporate the follow-up component when I first started designing the study. So what I've decided to do now is use health insurance data, so either Medicaid or Blue Cross Blue Shield, for example, and look at the entire first month or so, month to month of life of these newborns and look at the characteristics of their birth hospitalization and how they're associated with their longer term healthcare utilization. Now that type of data, administrative data, has its own challenges. So one pilot study I did kind of in between these two steps is to validate the Medicaid data with the clinical medical records to actually learn how well does Medicaid data represent the clinical data. And it seems to do fairly well for most things. So that's kind of a first step to then look at longer-term healthcare utilization outcomes. Sounds like a fascinating field of study and I think one that's very important. I think our readers would agree. If you had one summary or take-home point from this paper, what would you think that might be? Probably the one that first comes to mind is to reiterate that you had talked a lot about policies and institutional practice and for us to realize how much that can actually make care at a certain place, a certain center different than others. The question is, is that better or not? And very often hospitals will institute these protocols or guidelines not and not necessarily knowing how their outcomes might compare to others. And I think more recently with the surge of comparative effectiveness research and quality improvement initiatives, we're making much broader steps to improving implementation of these guidelines. But it reiterates to me at least what we, these decisions, these policies that we have may have longer term implications than the ones we think about when we're designing them. For example, admitting these babies to the NICU. We've talked about a lot of these clinical outcomes, length of stay, maybe exposure to antibiotics, et cetera. But we have, we, you know, I didn't have a chance really to touch on how it affects the mother-infant interaction, how much time the infant spends with the mother before they go home, bonding, and all those such things. Breastfeeding, you know, we haven't talked about all that. But definitely the implications of institutional policies and longer-term outcomes, or at least this paper for me, highlights the importance of thinking about those things. Dr. Alia, thank you for spending the time with us chatting today. I wish you well in future research down this much-needed study, and I know this is important both to our maternal fetal medicine side as well as our neonatology sides and how we counsel and care for this 
group of patients. So thank you again for spending the time sharing your study and work with us. Thanks. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.